Spy Talk, a podcast at the intersection of intelligence, foreign policy, national security, and military operations with Jeff Stein and Gene Meserve. Hi there, I'm Jeff Stein. And I'm Gene Meserve. Welcome to another episode of Spy Talk. Well, as always, Gene, there's fresh news on the espionage and security front with word of Microsoft reportedly foiling a Chinese hacking wave directed at 29 nations. And this comes as President Biden announces a diplomatic boycott of the Beijing Olympics. And there's a revelation that Pegasus spyware from the Israeli firm NSO was used to eavesdrop on U.S. diplomats in East Africa. And then there's that growing tension on the Ukraine-Russia border. But you've got word of something else going on closer to home, Gene. Tell us about it. Yeah, we don't hear a lot about security threats emanating from the Caribbean, but they are there. Chinese investment, Russian influence, Venezuelan political upheaval, Haitian lawlessness, drug trafficking gangs, and even, believe it or not, jihadists. At this point, this may not appear to be a high-risk threat to the United States, but the problem is that it could very rapidly escalate into becoming one. What's brewing in the Caribbean, I think, has all the potential to become a much more destabilizing threat than the U.S. currently realizes. That is Anthony Clayton, a professor at the University of the West Indies, who says the U.S. has taken its eye off its own backyard. More from him later on Spy Talk. Looking forward to that, Gene. We don't pay a lot of attention to that part of the world, and uh, it's now overdue. Now on to Mark Fallon, a former senior NCIS counterintelligence, counterterrorism agent and official. Fallon became deeply disturbed by what he saw was going on with prisoners at Guantanamo. Along with a few other officials, he strenuously objected to their treatment, which ranged from overwhelmingly coercive to outright torture to no avail. Eventually, he went public, writing a book called Unjustifiable Means the inside story of how the CIA, Pentagon, and U.S. government conspired to torture, which was held up by censors for 233 days before being published with huge sections blacked out in 2019. Fallon is one of a string of former national security officials who've sued the government over what they say is an abuse of the pre-publication review process. He also appears in a new riveting documentary about CIA torture that debuted on HBO this week. So I called him up to talk about that and related issues. Mark Fallon, welcome to Spy Talk. You spent some 30 years with NCIS as a special agent, counterterrorism specialist, counterintelligence specialist. I guess anybody with a TV knows what NCIS is. Uh, You worked on some major terrorism cases, the USS Cole bombing, the first World Trade Center bombing. But then you came upon something that the government didn't want you to see or certainly didn't want you to write about. Tell me what happened next. Yeah, well, what happened there, Jeff? First of all, uh, pleasure to be on the, the program with such a, uh, a professional steeped in the history as you are and as knowledgeable ah. as you are on the topics that I've worked over the years. Uh, you know, for, for me, working for NCIS was uh, 
you know, there couldn't have been a better fit for me. Uh, a kid from Jersey uh, uh, who thought the, uh, the looking across the Delaware River at the, uh, at, at, that was the West Coast, uh, looking at Pennsylvania, <laughs> then to be uh, thrown around the world working criminal investigations, counterterrorism, counterintelligence was, was a real uh, was a real honor, frankly. Uh, what, what happened uh, with me was after uh, the attacks of September 11th and 3,000 dead bodies, um, at the time I was the commander of the USS Cole Task Force investigating the attack on the coal, which happened on the 12th of October 2000. Uh, but the United States government decided that they were going to utilize an alternative system of justice to bring terrorists to, uh, to justice, a military commission's process. And the Army is the executive agency for war crimes within the Department of Defense, and it was looked at as a war crime. Uh, and so I was detailed. What was called a war crime by the Army in the Army manual? Well, it, it was considered under international law, it was considered that these acts of terrorism could be considered war crimes where there would be uh, unlawful belligerence. Uh, on the battlefield, uh, uh, and, and we called them different things over the time, uh, unlawful combatants, illegal belligerent. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. We struggled for a terminology because we were used to fighting armed conflicts with uniformed armies, right? Uniformed mm -hmm. armies. And, and now we are stuck with this uh, different type of adversary uh, that the government was struggling. Okay. To deal with. Now, let me jump forward. Yeah. So we had a different kind of adversary. So we decided, to, we decided to use a different kind of means to question them. And that led you to witnessing and hearing about torture carried out by CIA. Now, I understand that torture is kind of a religious term in a way. People either believe in it and think it's good and it works, and other people just are affirming their beliefs that it was ineffective. And, and, and the record shows, at least according to the investigations undertaken, that the CIA did not get effective uh, intelligence information in most cases using torture. But to jump forward to your involvement in this, you ended up writing Unjustifiable Means, the inside story of how the CIA, the Pentagon, and the U.S. government conspired to torture. Now, you had to submit that book to DOD censors, right? I did. And what happened? What happened? Well, it wound up getting stuck and mired in this pre-publication review process of censorship. So uh, it was in pre-publication review, uh, I think 279 days uh, I received, uh, was mandated. Isn't that, is that unusual? 279 well, days? Well, the, the DOD policy is 30 working days. Ah. Uh, and, and so... Uh, I don't know if they are ever able to adhere to that or not. Uh, they may be for more popular views, uh, but they certainly were not for my views because what happened with my manuscript was it was farmed out to 10 different agencies or departments. I was not told who my work product was given to and different agencies or departments were allowed to contest or redact parts of my manuscript which were part of the public record. What was redacted were parts of congressional hearings and other things. So, so what that says to you, or it says to me, is that they were deeply concerned about some of the things that you were writing about. If we can draw that. I mean, it wasn't just bureaucratic delay or they're understaffed or 
something like that. No, I, I think it was a, it was an offensive information operation to try to disrupt the, disrupt the publication of my of my book. An offensive information operation. What does that mean? Yeah, well, well, Jeff, as you know, in perception management, uh, you know, an old old school tradecraft, uh, when you try to manage the perception of your adversary to achieve your, your your objectives, and so the CIA came up with talking points to try to uh, get the public and the administration to adhere to what they were calling the EIT program, which I call exclusive yeah. reflect torture. And, and let's say it enhanced interrogation techniques. That's well, well that, 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 that's what the CIA calls them, but they were really just right. excuses to inflict torture. And the CIA mm. come up with talking points that torture was safe, necessary, and effective. And it was none of those things. And so what I have done in my book was totally deconstruct their arguments from the inside as someone who was a witness to history about what occurred. I felt like I was an undercover operative and I worked undercover before uh, and I was witnessing a crime in progress and I was trying to stop it from occurring. I actually let me let me just jump in here, Mark. You're a tough guy. You've been a street agent. You've worked against terrorists. Are you saying then in all your 30 years in the agency or leading up to Guantanamo, that you had never seen such rough stuff uh, bordering on torture used against suspects in all your years as an NCIS agent? No, I'm not saying that. What, what, I, what I will say is that torture and cruelty as policy shocked me, uh, absolutely mm. floored me. It, it, didn't, it, it didn't surprise me that the CIA would engage in this type of activity because they had a history of doing so. MK Ultra, Kubar Counterintelligence Manual, Human Resource Exploitation. Uh, you know, over the years, they had always dabbled in this type of abuse. Usually, it resulted in them killing somebody. And then Congress gets involved, and then they say they'll never do it again. Nobody's held accountable, and then they do it again, and they kill somebody again. So, so the fact that the CIA was involved didn't shock me. What shocked me was that the United States military would, would, would agree to this. That mm -hmm. was having you know, spent a career as an NCS special agent, working for the Department of Navy, deploying with the Navy Marine Corps around the world. The fact that military officers and the United States military would do so, I found shocking. Mm -hmm. And you're referencing to some degree the uh, evidence of widespread routine debasing torture at, at the Iraqi prison Abu Ghraib, the famous photographs of that. Yeah, that and, and, and that, and that the, the, the lineage from that is right from the CIA to Guantanamo. Uh, an attorney named John Fredman came to Guantanamo on October 2nd or October 3rd, 2002, facilitated the spread of torture. G General Jeff Miller was the JTF Guantanamo commander, implemented the torture there went on to Abu Ghraib to get Moise Abu Ghraib, and you have the atrocities that occurred because they were the, the torture program was one program spread out in two different departments of the government differently, but with the same results, human degradation. Mm -hmm. And you could see the photos of, of Abu Ghraib and what happened there. Uh, and, and a lot of those photos are still classified. You mm -hmm. have not even seen the worst of those photos. Uh, now, the 
the uh, director of CIA at that time, George Tenet, uh, said that quite emphatically again and again in public appearances that the torture, which he doesn't call torture, of course, he said that saved lives. Do you agree with that? Absolutely not. The, the, the Senate Select Committee of Intelligence looked at the, the 20 most frequently used claims by the CIA that they were able to save lives. In those 20 cases, they, they disputed every one of those. And I would talk to mm -hmm. friends in the CIA and say, you guys didn't even get lucky one time, once out of 20? I mean, you couldn't even get that lucky. What, what torture does is harden resistance. What torture get, does is get the person to say what you want them to say. To, you know, to, torture is effective, Jeff. Just like rape is effective and genocide is effective. Effective for what is the question, right? Torture mm -hmm. is not an effective way to get accurate, reliable information. We went to war with Iraq based partially on fabricated information from Ibn Sheikh Alibi that was tortured out of him. He said mm -hmm. there was Al Qaeda in Iraq. George Bush went to Cincinnati, Ohio in a speech to drum up support for the American public, said there was Al Qaeda in Iraq. Colin Powell went to the United Nations and said there was Al Qaeda in Iraq. That was all information that was a derivative product of torture by Ibn Sheikh Alibi, someone who I wanted to bring to justice for military commissions, but he was ghosted and sent to Egypt instead. Now, George Tenet, CIA director, didn't have any problem getting his book out, uh, very little, if any, classification or, you know, uh, uh, censorship of what he wrote. The same with Jose Rodriguez, the head of the National Clandestine Service, who authorized uh, the torture, oversaw the black sites and so on. But your book, Unjustifiable Means, the inside story of how the CIA Pentagon and U.S. government conspired to torture, was held up by censors for 233 days and then published with entire sections blacked out for reasons that you consider highly suspect. You and other former national security officials and a U.S. Marine sued the government to lift its censorship, and that's headed to the Supreme Court. Former FBI Special Agent Ali Soufan also went to court to force the government to unredact sections of his book that demolished false claims by the CIA that waterboarding and other means of torture were necessary to break prisoners, in particular one that went by the name of Abu Zubaydah. What's the status of your claim? Yeah, let me just mention back to uh, what you said about uh, George Tenet's book and Jose Rodriguez's book, because both of those books were written, written with somebody. They were written with the person who worked for George Tenet in the CIA, who came up with the talking points that torture was safe, necessary, and effective. And that is Bill Harlow. So Bill Harlow went from being the CIA spokesperson for George Tenet to writing George Tenet's book with him, to writing Jose Rodriguez's book with him, to writing Jim Mitchell's book with him. So the same- Jim Mitchell was the CIA contractor, the psychologist who they hired to to, he was the architect of the torture program. Correct. He, what, what, what Jim Mitchell did as a contractor, and he made $81 million, his company did, was really just restore a dormant capability that the CIA had used. Uh, they had used the same processes in MKUltra, Kubark, the HRE, Human Resource Exploitation, Latin America. Uh, all he did was restore a, a capability that had gone dormant, 
a lot of those people in the CIA retired and left. So he just restored this capability. But but moving on to Ali, and I, I worked with Ali on the USS coal bombing. Uh, Ali uh, would come in when I had some of my high value targets investigating Al Qaeda for military commissions. I would often ask Ali Sufan and Bob McFadden from NCIS to come in and do those interrogations. They spoke Arabic, they were Arabist. Uh, and, and so uh, know Ali well. I was the vice president of this company for two years. Uh, so I'm well yeah. familiar with, uh, with his book, Black Banners, and he writes about me in Black Banners as well. Hmm. And what Ali says is true. Uh, all of that information, all of the actual intelligence from Abu Zubaydah occurred prior to his torture. Uh, the CIA didn't even know who Zubaydah was. They were claiming he was the number three person in Al-Qaeda. Abu Zubaydah was not even a member of Al-Qaeda. The entire torture program was based on the CIA claiming that they needed to uh, conduct these EITs on Abu Zubaydah, who is not even a member of Al-Qaeda. Okay, now going back to the censorship issue. So all that was censored from, from Ali Sufan's book. And I assume that there were similar passages in your book that were censored. Uh, and eventually a lot of it, uh, uh, as a result of Ali Sufan's suit, uh, was uh, unredacted uh, and made public. And we now know what it, what it was. Now, circling back around, as an NCIS agent, for some 30 years, I we can all assume you know what a real secret is. I certainly do. I would investigate people for disclosing classified information. I would mm -hmm. never disclose any national security information under any circumstances. So to make the obvious point, you're saying that this censorship is political. It has nothing to do with legitimate secrets. I put nothing in my book that I knew or believed or even suspected to be classified. It was a matter of public record. Are there any circumstances in which violating the uh, pledge or the oath that you take uh, to keep everything secret uh, is justified? You know, for me, as a former federal agent, um, I have I struggled with that. Uh, you know, I had options. I could have gone to the media. I did not. I would not. Um, I felt that uh, that would not be authorized. That would be unlawful for me to go to the media. There are some who believe that you can do so um, under some circumstances. I just do not happen to be uh, uh, in that camp. Uh, however, I do believe that people need to be held accountable. Uh, now, now, Ali Sufan's book has been unredacted. Has anyone been held accountable for those unauthorized redactions? I'm not aware of anyone ever receiving any type of punitive award, uh, punitive damages, or, or even any type of administrative sanctions within the government for over-redactions. We penalize mm -hmm. somebody if they disclose classified information. There should be penalties for someone who prohibits somebody from disclosing information that is not classified. What would be a legitimate violation of the oath of secrecy? Well, well, well certainly, if I, uh, uh, I, I know things now about what occurred, uh, with torture that I could never tell anybody, right? I, I am, I've been read into programs, uh, you know, and, and the obligation for, you know, it, it, it exists. It doesn't stop when I leave the government. I still need to protect those secrets that I am aware of. Uh, and, and just like I don't believe that uh, my oath to protect and defend the Constitution of the United States stopped when I retired from government service. 
Uh, I took that oath and I believe it today that as a citizen, I have responsibility to do so. Knowing things that trouble you, that you believe should not be kept secret, does this give you, do you live with a measure of pain in your soul? Uh, I don't know if it's pain in my soul, Jeff. Uh, there is a burden that I carry with me. I mean, I, 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 I swore the USS Cole was tacked on my watch, right? I was the chief of counterintelligence operations for the Europe, Africa, Middle East division of NCIS, uh, and 17 sailors died, uh, you know, uh, uh, in October of 2000, October 12th on my watch. And, and, and I have made a pledge that I would not rest until those perpetrators were brought to justice. I then became the chief investigator for military commissions and that victim pool now increased to 3,000. Those, the families of those victims have not had closure yet because the United States government continues to try to protect torture and the torturers. And so I am elated every time there's a FOIA suit, every time at the military commissions at Guantanamo, more and more information is disclosed and we illuminate the darkness of the crimes that were committed in the name of the American people. And so I speak out proudly and forcefully about things that I know to be true because I think our nation needs to know the truth because without truth, there is no justice. And we still have not avenged uh, through a, a legitimate justice process, uh, those that attacked us on September 11th or those who attacked us on uh, October 12, 2000. And as far as we know, there could be continual bad things going on at Guantanamo now. Yeah, it, it, exactly. I mean, uh, currently right now, uh, you mentioned I have a lawsuit going to the Supreme Court. We've petitioned certiorari for the Supreme Court. And, and what my lawsuit is, Jeff, my lawsuit is not to unredact my book. My lawsuit is to fix the process. Because as a former counterintelligence professional, as a current national security professional, if we do not give our employees the ability to have an outcome, if we are going to use the pre-publication review process as a political tool, they will be more prone to leak classified information. So I believe the pre-publication review process makes us less safe because it might drive people to use outlets to find some journalist who they can leak the information to, and then they may leak things that are legitimate secrets and that may endanger lives. It's a system that really needs fixing. Absolutely. I, I currently, yesterday, I was asked uh, by the office uh, of Senator Dick Durbin to submit a statement for the record uh, for the hearings they're gonna have next week about closing Guantanamo Bay. Um, it's, it's a simple 800 word statement for the record. Uh, and the deadline that I was given by Senator Durbin's office was close of business today. I wrote my statement. I submitted it to the pre-publication review just prior to you, me calling you on this line. I talked to the review officer and I said, uh, what can you do for me? I have this, I, I, I have other branch of government who has asked me for a statement yeah. and I am having to give it to the government to review and possibly censor before I give it to the United States Congress. So we are talking at 4.24 p.m. on Friday afternoon. Have you gotten a response? Not Has yet. your article Not been yet. cleared? I, I, have, I haven't looked, Jeff, but it will cause a dilemma because I know there's nothing classified in what I've written. 
I have uh, lawyers at the ACLU and Knight First Amendment Institute, and I'll have to decide whether a request from Congress is more compelling than, than a policy from pre-publication review that they are allowed to review and censor a product before I give it out to someone for publication. Well, good luck to you, Mark Fallon. It's, it's an honor to have you on our show. Thank you. Thank you, Jeff. It's an honor to be with you. That's former NCIS agent and official Mark Fallon. Sort of links to that whole issue of overclassification. I read something recently, I don't know if this is apocryphal or true, that Michael Hayden, the former director of the NSA and the CIA, once got a Merry Christmas email that was classified top secret. <laughs> Just shows how far they'll go to keep things quiet. I'm not surprised. And now we hear about former Defense Secretary Mark Esper in a struggle with uh, the censors over his book. Other former directors of the CIA and so on have struggled with the censorship process. And, and too often it appears that the censors are, are blocking out stuff to protect the agencies from embarrassment. So much for checks and balances. Hmm. We're going to be back after a short break with more. And we just want to remind you that we are conducting a survey to learn a little bit more about you, our listeners. If you would, please take a few minutes and click on the listener survey link in this episode's show notes. We'll be right back. News this week that China may seek to establish a permanent naval base on Africa's Atlantic coast has, according to reports, raised alarms at the White House and Pentagon. Well, China is also putting down routes much closer to our shores, making significant investments in the Caribbean. Professor Anthony Clayton of the University of the West Indies said there are plenty of additional reasons U.S. intelligence should be keeping a closer lookout on its southern flank, including several active jihadist groups in the region. The first are the returning foreign fighters in Trinidad and Tobago, ISIS affiliates. They, a group, went from Trinidad to fight with the Islamic State in the war in Syria. Some died, some survived. Most of the ones who survived are back in the Caribbean. We believe that some of them have essentially integrated into criminal networks now. There was an older group in Trinidad who now to some extent have been bypassed. They were the group who led a coup in Trinidad some years ago. They were actually more closer to um, uh, Colonel Gaddafi's regime in Libya. But another group, which I think we have to be particularly concerned about, is uh, Hezbollah, who have a, a, a major base with the support of the government in Venezuela. And they're involved in narcotics and weapons trafficking and money laundering. What kind of threat do these groups pose? We're not talking about numerically very large groups, but that doesn't have much bearing on the kind of damage that they can do. You will remember the incident in Tunisia some years ago, where one man armed with an assault rifle walked onto a beach and killed a number of tourists. And Tunisia's uh, tourism industry. Now, many of the nations of the Caribbean are uh, very dependent on tourism. It's uh, in a number of jurisdictions. It's the largest source of foreign exchange and it's the largest source of employment 
And so a single incident which impacted on the tourism industry would have uh, very serious economic consequences, especially now because our tourism industry has been very badly impacted by COVID. So what are the numbers when it comes to this group? Do we have any idea? We don't have any realistic estimate of the number of people involved in um, Hezbollah's operations in Venezuela. The number of returning foreign fighters who came back to Trinidad from Syria is probably only one or 200. But again, you have to remember that the havoc that these people can cause is not really in relation to their numbers because you're not looking at a conventional military force. You're looking at people who may be concerned to cause um, maximum economic and social disruption. Do you have any sense as to whether they're recruiting, whether they're trying to grow? Oh, we know, well, we know that they have. We have no shortage of disaffected youth, probably something like um, 10,000 plus gang members across the Caribbean. country like Jamaica, around about 300 active gangs, of which about 50 are, are extremely dangerous. And the top two or three are really quite major league international players. One of the things that became apparent after, after Islamic State become the best-known terrorist franchise and to some extent replaced al-Qaeda is that the recruitment base changed. Um, the typical profile was a disaffected youth who already had a prior criminal record. So these are the kinds of people, typically low-ranking gang members, who are, who are targeted. So Higher-ranking gang members tend to be more committed to what they're doing and they tend to be more in a position to benefit. Low-ranking gang members have very few career options. I mean, if they can't, if there's not much chance of them going up within the gang structure, and if there's not much chance of them having any kinds of transition out into a legitimate career path, then a fundamentalist message is very compelling because it offers them a chance for status, which is ex- extremely important. Would you say at this point that the gangs, in fact, pose a greater security threat than jihadists in the Caribbean? Well, the gangs are a threat that we have, to some extent, learned to live with. Are we going to see more Hades? Well, Haiti is an extreme case. Haiti is effectively a failed state at the moment. The institutions of government are extremely weak, and that includes the police and the security forces. They are actually being outgunned on the streets. Is it going to happen elsewhere? I don't think so, no. Haiti is a genuinely extreme case. It is an outlier. Apart from being the poorest country in the hemisphere, it suffered from many years of appalling mismanagement and bad government. The crisis in Venezuela, is that increasing um, instability in the Caribbean region? Venezuela is is becoming a major exporter of instability, yes. Apart from the fact that it's now close to between 20 and 25% of the entire population of Venezuela are now refugees. Most of them have gone over the border into adjacent states, but there's probably at least 100,000 or more who are now in the islands, and uh, mostly in Trinidad, obviously, because there's only seven miles of water in in between the two countries. And we've picked up uh, an increase in human trafficking pretty much right throughout the Caribbean. 
Uh, not all of these are Venezuela by any means, but certainly some are. Uh, and they're people who are uh, fleeing desperate conditions in Venezuela. Large parts of Venezuela are really under the control of organized crime. It's a mafia state, and the, the government is basically behaving just like the, one of the biggest gang amongst a collection of gangs, and the army is too. So there is no recourse for these people. And Venezuela is awash with guns, due partly to the fact that President Chavez thought it would be a good idea to create a lot of armed militias, who are essentially now just uh, another group within the organized crime uh, networks in Venezuela. So yes, the situation is really extremely problematic for, for, the, for Venezuela's neighbors. Chinese investment in the region has been increasing, hasn't it? And I'm wondering what they're investing in. Uh, China's invested at least $7 billion that we know of in the islands and probably another $8 billion in Guyana. Uh, there's also quite a lot of investment that isn't, is probably off the books and includes a lot of things like uh, soft loans tied to infrastructure projects. So the total is probably somewhere over 20 billion. But given the fact that uh, a lot of this is quite murky, it's very hard to be sure about the real figures. They're investing in um, a very wide range of assets. Um, They're buying, for example, hotel resorts. They're building highways, uh, ports. They now own two of the biggest container ports in the Caribbean. Um, They're looking at, for example... Uh, telecommunications, which is something that the uh, US, I think, is getting concerned about because of the potential for China to develop monitoring and cyber warfare capabilities right along the US's uh, third border. And they're acquiring assets in terms of land, a lot of oil from Venezuela. They've actually got a lot of the um, guarantees over a lot of Venezuela's future oil production, uh, gold and mineral rights. So they're acquiring a a wide range of of assets in Latin America and the Caribbean generally. And this is partly because the the attention of the US has been elsewhere of late. They've been obviously more concerned about what's happening in Iraq and Afghanistan than what's happening in their own neighborhood. And the fact that the US has rather to some extent disengaged has created a vacuum. And China has been adept, increasingly adept, at moving into that vacuum. And remember also, as we were saying a few minutes ago, um, a lot of the nations of the Caribbean have really taken a a serious hit from from COVID. And we came out of the global financial crisis, and then we were recovering, and then we had a series of hurricanes. We were recovering, then we had COVID and so forth, which we have not yet come out of. So anybody who turns up on your doorstep with, uh, with a lot of money especially because China's, Chinese firms do tend to be very comfortable at dealing in very corrupt environments. And uh, they, they, they do like to get on the inside track. And because they can import cheap labor, in spite of all of the, uh, <clears throat> some of the Caribbean countries have got rules about that, but they seem to be able to bypass them. And they have actually been able to uh, push most North American and European competition out of the market. So China's been able to a very strong presence in the Caribbean. If you're familiar with the game of Go, um, this is, I think, a, a Go strategy. It's all about um, building out across the board and uh, taking more and more territory until eventually you leave your opponent with uh, no room for maneuver. Is China providing any military aid? 
Uh, yes, it's, uh, there have been some transfers of equipment. Uh, they're also very generous when it comes to things like training opportunities, and that includes training opportunities for the police and the military. You put it all together, Venezuela, China, gangs, and jihadists. Mm. How big a threat is there to the United States brewing in the Caribbean? At this point, this um, may not appear to be a high-risk threat to the United States, but the problem is that it could very rapidly escalate into being becoming one. What's brewing in the Caribbean, I think, has all the potential to become a much more destabilizing threat than the US currently realizes. You have to also remember that Russia, too, is engaged in Nicaragua, in Venezuela, and Cuba. And uh, we have now China building uh, a chain of um, right around the, the third border. And I think you can't assume that their intentions are entirely benign. I, I don't think that they are. There might be some scenarios under which they might find it useful to be able to light a chain of fires in the US near abroad. And that's something that I think that the US should be coming aware of. And again, remember that a lot of this has happened because the US appears to have somewhat disengaged from the Caribbean. It has left a vacuum. And understandably, uh, countries have turned to whoever turns up with a large checkbook. And that's kind of what's happened here. Do you have indications that, that US intelligence agencies are alert to this, are paying attention? There's very little presence. I mean, yes, of course, there's some, a couple of FBI, one or two DEA, but the, the level of commitment is, is low. I mean, the, I don't know what it is. You know? It's not, it, the, the Caribbean has it caused a, a fair number of problems for the US and for Canada. And yet the level of commitment to improving policing, forensics, weapons control, in the Caribbean has been extremely limited. And this is quite surprising, genuinely surprising, because this is something that the US could do, which would not be particularly expensive, but would actually do a great deal to start to address the problems at source. But you know, there's something else that the US could do. And this is something that the US has always consistently refused to do. And that is look at the fact that um, the countries of the Caribbean are suffering some of the world's highest rates of homicide, and most of those homicides are committed with guns imported from the United States. Now, every time we raise this issue, we get this, oh, well, Second Amendment to the Constitution can't do anything about it, which is nonsense. These weapons are being exported illegally. The US, of course, has the right to have as many school shootings as it wants. But what the US does not under, perhaps ever understood is that this, you know, the US sees this as a matter of domestic policy. It's not because these weapons leak out. It's very important, I think, for the US to understand how fluid this situation is and how much has changed over the last few years. China now has a major presence throughout the Caribbean. That was not the case 10 years ago. We've seen the situation in Venezuela deteriorating, uh, and it's now a really dreadful situation. The situation in Haiti gets becoming very much worse now, to the point where really nobody has got a sensible or coherent plan for trying to trying to fix the situation there. And yet the US, a lot of people in the US just see the Caribbean as 
a beach and a palm tree somewhere where they go for their holidays. And they, they, and we have a lot of people who come here and they stay in a nice resort on the coast. There's places on the north coast of Jamaica. You can stay in a luxury hotel, look up at the hills, think what a wonderful view it is and not realize in some cases that you're looking up at communities where the homicide rate is when I did a comparison in 2015 and the homicide rate in one of our parishes was about four and a half times the homicide rate in the government controlled areas of Afghanistan. And yet uh, people who would not go and take a holiday in Kabul were cheerfully coming to take a holiday in the Caribbean. Now, it's how it happens that they're staying in areas, in, in, in safe areas, where there is very little violence. But you can walk four miles up the road and be in an area which has got a rate of killing which you won't find anywhere outside of a war zone. And people seem to be able to live with this. They don't even realise that this is actually happening within sight, within earshot. And I think that this is uh, something that the US perhaps really needs to kind of rethink it's um, what's happening in the Caribbean, actually bring its thinking about up to date, and it's probably about 10 years behind this actual situation, and to rethink its whole strategy and policy towards the Caribbean. That was Professor Anthony Clayton of the University of the West Indies. Maybe I'll uh, rethink my plans to head to the Caribbean this winter. Just kidding. But do you get a sense, Gene, that uh, U.S. intelligence is on top of this issue? What Professor Clayton said uh, when I asked him about that is that there is a very low profile and not as much cooperation as you might think. We have visions of all sorts of cooperative operations to deal with drug traffickers and human smuggling and the like. Uh, He says uh, there really isn't that much going on. And what the nations of the Caribbean really need help with is maritime domain awareness. They just don't have the resources to do this on their own. And he thinks it would go a long way to uh, stopping some of the threats, though clearly not all of them. Hmm. And also, uh, I've noticed recently in the news that the COVID issue has uh, infected the politics of various places like Guadalupe. There were riots when the uh, unions objected to uh, vaccinations and mask uh, requirements. So that kind of turmoil, as shown here, can can lead to uh, political dissolutions that uh, do threaten the security of the Caribbean and thus indirectly ourselves. Thanks so much for joining us this week for another edition of Spy Talk. A reminder that you can subscribe to Spy Talk on Substack. We'd also love it if you subscribed to the Spy Talk podcast and gave us a review or two. That would be terrific. And you can follow me on Twitter at Gene Meserve and Jeff. I'm at Spy Talker on Twitter. And please do visit uh, Spy Talk on Substack, where we have a regular flow of uh, news and the intelligence and security community. Talk to you next week. For more original reporting and insights like this, subscribe to spytalk.co on Substack and follow us on Twitter at talk underscore spy. If you enjoyed our podcast, subscribe and leave a review on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. 